Over the nearly 500 episodes of The Inner Circle, I've had some incredible guests. One is the legendary engineer, Elliot Shiner, and this special replay is from way back on episode 51 in April of 2015. You've certainly heard Elliot's work, as he's been instrumental in the sound of the Eagles, Steely Dan, Eric Clapton, Jackson Brown, Sting, Foo Fighters, and too many others to mention. He's received 27 Grammy Award nominations, winning eight, four Emmy nominations and winning two, and a host of other awards for excellence in the field of audio recording. During this replay interview, we spoke about the various stages of his studio life, from his early days at A&R Studios in New York City, going from 4-track to 8-track, his mixing method, the difference between working with Steely Dan and the Eagles, and so much more. Remember that this interview was done way back in 2015, so some of his comments about digital audio workstations and plugins are no doubt different today. I spoke to Elliot via phone, so the quality was a little shaky, but not the content. Tell me, what was it like to have Phil Ramon as a mentor? Well, I didn't know, know any other mentors, really. No, actually, I did, but, you know, Phil, uh, you know, soon after I started working for Phil, I mean, I knew I would gain a lot of knowledge. You know, there was no other way. You, there were no schools. You learned from the engineers that were working in the studio if you were lucky enough to get a job at a studio. So the more I worked for Phil and I looked around, and so the other studios really didn't see any studio in New York that was, that had anything close to what Phil or A&R had. And, uh, you know, at times it was, you know, you, at times I'd worry whether I was doing enough, whether, you know, Phil would approve of what I was doing because he pretty much, you know, when, when I was his assistant, you know, he pretty much gave you full control of, you know, the way you saw a room set up. So, you know, I have a date with him, you know, let's say from 10 in the morning till six at night and it might be a big band or an orchestra or something. And he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't comment beforehand, you know, unless there was something so weird, you know, he just let you set the room the way you thought it would work. And if it didn't work, you know, he'd let you have it, I guess, in the morning. But, uh, you know, so I always wondered what, you know, I'd start second guess myself and I go to other guys and question, you know, am I doing the right thing here? But, uh, I, there was no better teacher than the other engineers at A&R at the time were, you know, I gained a lot from them as well. It's just that I worked more with Phil than any of the other guys. So, you know, it was quite a learning experience for me, you know, and it's something that uh, I was always forever grateful to Phil for. Was Phil producing at the time, or was he just engineering? He was just engineering. That must have been interesting to see him make that transition. Well, by the time he made the transition, I wasn't working for him anymore. You know, I mean, generally the way it worked at A&R, you know, you were hired as, uh, what they call them, setup men, you know. Uh, but you were an assistant engineer, basically. You were tape op and you set up the room, broke down the room, and did anything, you know, the engineer needed. Um, so by the time, I mean, I was literally engineering within the first six to nine months, you know, Phil would just sort of throw you into it. And, uh, you know, you went through a process, you learned how to, how to cut a ref disc, you learned how to edit film a little bit and edit, uh, mag stripe and full code. But generally right after that, you know, he, you know, he'd bring you back to, in my case, I, I worked for him again after that. And 
you know, he just threw me uh, from the frying pan into the fire. So you were cutting discs back then? Of course. I remember back then, you know, people didn't, you know, most people didn't have the ability to play a tape copy, you know, because that's what there was. It was either tape copies or rec discs. So nine out of ten times, you know, you'd have a rec disc cut. Now, there were guys who were actually doing it all the time, you know, cutting a disc, but you had to learn how. If you might finish a date late at night after midnight or something, then the artist would want to take a rec disc back home. So you'd have to go down and cut it. Did you feel that that helped you in engineering? Well, I was awful. I mean, I couldn't cut a good rec disc at all. So it, it didn't help me at all. I, I couldn't get out of the mastering room fast enough. It's interesting talking to Ken Scott and he describing the Abbey Road way where before you became an engineer, you went to mastering and you, you learned everything about mastering and they felt that was the best way to, once you understood the limitations of vinyl, then you'd be a better engineer. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that that existed where I was and there was never any talk about that. I mean, that could be. Uh, the only benefit you got from knowing what you could and couldn't get on a disc. But, you know, I mean, if you had to cut a good disc to understand how to engineer, that didn't work for me. But, you know, I knew that, you know, if I was mixing a cut that I knew was going to be in the inner band, you know, not to put much bass on it. So, I mean, there were those kind of, that was that knowledge. But, you know, other than that, uh, no, I, I didn't, you know, I mean, if it is, I mean, there are guys doing work today that's phenomenal and they never cut a disc in their lives. When you started, was it four track or was it eight track? It was four track. Well, no, Wednesday, it was four. I mean, four track in one of the, in one of the rooms, it was strictly four track in the other room. It was eight track. So, but eight track had just literally, you know, I think the machine was delivered about two weeks before I got there. And I remember all the engineers at the time were saying, well, what do we do with all these tracks? You know, I mean, typically on a four track, they would, you know, put the entire rhythm section on one track and then they put like strings and horns if they, if there were on another and then vocals on, on the last two. When did it occur to people to, to split things up? Soon after the A track came in, somebody said, well, why, why don't we put the drums separately? And they just put all the drums on one track, and then we have control of that. And the bass went on a separate track. So there was that kind of utilization. And, you know, it really depended on uh, on what, what you were recording, but at times you'd have the piano separate or, or guitar separate. But, you know, you'd still end up putting all the strings on one track, all the horns on one track. Um, so, I mean, it varied, you know, and and it was... You know, by the time 16-track rolled around, you know, going, oh, man, you can keep the kick separate, you can keep the tom separate or the snare separate, you know. So it it was good in that we grew with the, you know, with the technology. It wasn't like, you know, some of the kids that come in today, they got to jump into everything all at once. You know, four-track primarily and a little bit of eight-track. And then as it grew, I grew. When did you see stereo recording started, like, spreading the drums out and the piano and things like that? Well, the only thing I really ever recorded in those days that was stereo was, um, was a piano. And occasionally, I mean, you know, maybe, a, a, you know, a string section, you know, just take a couple of M50s and place them up high and hope that, you know, they'd play well. But I didn't, 
you know, I didn't do much in the way of uh, stereo drums except for overhead. Well, I get, you know, it dep- I mean, I, I would, you know, if there were three or four times back then, you know, I would put it on a stereo track. But as far as guitars and most keyboards, you know, everything was generally mono, and I preferred it to be mono. When did you see the transition to more stereo happening? Was that in the, the, the 70s, the late 70s? Or was it when 16, when there were more tracks with 16 track, for instance? Even then, you know, no, it was more... When I really noticed it was when digital keyboards came in, which would be the late 70s. Seven uh, was the primary example. That was like the first Yamaha's... You know, Again, the stereo keyboard that I remember, yeah. and you know, this thing started being stereo because it had two outputs. You know, and a lot of times you would get information that was stereo out. You know, it said stereo, but it was really mono. When did you feel like you had a good handle on mixing? Did it take a while for you to feel like, okay, I got this, or were you comfortable right from the beginning? I wasn't comfortable from the beginning. A, a, a great example. I did. Uh, I recorded Van Morrison's Moon Dance, and it was it was late fall. We've been working on it for a while, but it was in the late fall, closer to Christmas, uh, I got word from the label and from management that it had to be mixed and submitted by January first. And Van didn't didn't want to come down. He wanted to be with his family, and so he stayed up there all Christmas. And this was only eight track, and I was uncomfortable with it. You know, I was just uncomfortable on a, on a music level. You know, I, I didn't feel like, I didn't feel comfortable that I would get this right by myself. So I had Ben's uh, drummer, Gary Malabar, you know, come in and sit with me. And, you know, we based, we mixed that, our, you know, I mixed it with him there. And, you know, any musical decisions, you know, I sort of deferred to him. Sonically, he deferred to me. So after that point, I mean, it wasn't a huge record, but it was a seminal record, and it did okay. And after that point, I felt more comfortable, you know, mixing. But everything's cyclical. I mean, you know, you you, you have a bunch of hits, and then all of a sudden you don't have any hits, and you wonder it's because you're not you're not doing a good job mixing, or you know. So I don't know if you ever feel comfortable at this point in my career. I'm totally comfortable. You know, I accept what I do, and if people are calling me, they're calling me because they want me to do what I do. So, it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm totally okay. You once told me that, unlike a lot of other engineers, you don't edit- editorialize when you're mixing, and if there's 100 tracks, you find a way to fit all of them in. How do you do that? I mean, with more, the track counts are going up, and from what I see, they're not coming down. So, how do you do that? Just, you know, it's, it's balancing. It's, you know, I focus on each instrument. I don't ever, and I've seen a lot of guys do this, and I'm not capable of doing it this way, but I've seen a lot of guys just throw up the faders and start balancing and, you know, get a vibe to it. And it, it, if you don't hear anything, everything you don't, you know, as long as you've got some kind of vibe going and it feels good and it sounds good, you know, so maybe you won't hear everything. For me, I, it's an individual focus. So like if I, if I start a mix, I'm starting with the drums. And I get that to a point where, you know, I like what they sound like and I like the balance. And 
I see where they're sitting and I'm always going to share them there. So anything I put in afterwards, like I'll put the basin next. And usually I, I concentrate on the kick when I'm putting the bass in, you know, the, the bass is never louder than the kick. The kick is never louder than the bass. You know, it's something to me that has to be equal. Um, and based on where I put the kick in the kit, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to hear everything I want to hear. And it's, it's like that it's constant, you know, so for the next thing I put in, I'm balancing it against those two things, you know, and I'm making sure that I, I hear what I'm putting in plus everything I've put in prior to it. And it's just a, a sense of building it. And that's generally how I, you know, how I think about a mix, you know, I want to hear everything. I mean, I take it for granted that uh, an artist or a producer would put this in a record because they, uh, they wanted to hear it. Yeah. So I just assume, you know, I'm going to make them hear it. What's the typical track count you're getting? these days it varies you know i just you know it sometimes it's 48 sometimes it's a, a little less than that and sometimes it's you know between 100 and 150 crazy huh yeah it's crazy in a sense but when you look at it you know you when i load it in and i look at it on the screen you know you know some guys when they record like they'll they'll put a couple of background parts on two channels and then Another background part, same singers, different kind of part in a different place on two other tracks when they could have been on the same track, you know? So a, a lot of times I'll get the check, the track count down by just, you know, you know, busting them out in the same outputs. Yeah. Yeah. Are you still using the window? Yes, I am. You're one of the few guys that hasn't switched to Pro Tools. Me and Chuck Ainley. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, I always thought Nuendo was a wonderful platform. I gave up on it though because I got tired of the whole thing of having to transfer things all the time was a pain. Yeah, well, I don't like Pro Tools. You know, I mean, I use it in the studio if I'm in a commercial studio, or you know, if uh, you know, I'm working on somebody's somebody's stuff and from overdubbing on on a project that's you know been started in Pro Tools. You know, I'm not going to switch over. But when I mix, you know, I just get the wave files and I create my own new window sessions. You know, you got to go with what you feel is right. You know, I was so anti pro tool because I wasn't going to be told what converters I have to use. Yeah. yeah. What, what, you know, that was like pissing me off and spending $40,000 on it. I did it the very first time and said, this is bullshit, you know, cause I didn't like the way anything sounded. This was back in, mid nineties, I guess. And, you know, I just hated it. And at, at that point in time, I didn't get, you know, I couldn't even get support from them. You know, I, I'd have questions with it. And, you know, initially on a, on a project that I started, it was the first time I worked in Pro Tools, you know, it kept crashing. And, you know, when I, when I'd call them, you know, I never got a response to this day. I never got a response. <laughs> That's what they do. You know, like I was doing, I did that Eagles documentary film and we were in Pro Tools and we had an issue. We were mixing in the box and, you know, I, I called Digi, our Avid, and told him what the issue was. I spoke to an engineer and he said, hmm, he said, I'll, uh, I'll let me get back to you on this. Never heard from him. Two weeks later, he called me back and said, I'm still working on that. Two weeks later. 
that's that was his name. After two weeks, he's still working on it. How much do you do in the box these days? Do you do anything in the box, or are you strictly in the console? Eagles Project was the only thing I've ever done totally in the box, and I hated it. And a good reason for not doing it in the box is, is there's some deception going on. You know, like you'll get a plug-in that's supposed to be 96K, and then later find out it's not 96K. And if you made the mistake of putting it across the output bus at 48K, your 96 file, 96K files are 48K. And we made that mistake, and we tried to get it onto HD tracks, and they informed us that it wasn't 96K, it was 48K. Right? I mean, you know, if you're just doing, you know, putting something across a couple of piano tracks, it's not going to affect the overall mix, you know, but putting it across the, the, the stereo bus, that's, that's a big problem. Do you use any of the processing then in Nuendo or any plugins? Yeah, I, you know, I use, I, mean, I use the EQ in, uh, in Nuendo. I really like their EQ. And um, I, I've got the UAD stuff. I really love that stuff. That's all inside. But, you know, I use a lot of stuff. Uh, outside and uh, on the console, like like reverbs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I don't use any any reverbs in the box. How much fixing and cleanup do you have to do when you get a track in? Well, occasionally there's a bunch, but I I hire my kid to do it. I don't do it. I get too bored. My son comes up, he does all the work, or he'll he'll you know just load it into his laptop and uh, and do it there. How much are you tracking these days? I'd have to say over the course of this last year, maybe 10% was tracking. Do you miss it? Yes, I do. I miss, I miss going to commercial studio and seeing people I know, just being able to interact and talk about what's new or what's not new or what we hate, what's shitty about the music business. I miss that whole aspect of it. And I also miss the interaction with musicians, like, you know, I'll, you know, if somebody calls me to do a jazz project, yeah, you know, I don't care what it pays. I'll do it only because, you know, it's like 99% I'm going to be in the studio recording musicians in the same room. And I miss that. Yeah. That's why the Nashville guys have it good. Yeah. I mean, I went down and visited Chuck and I mean, he's got a, a really beautiful analog room. I mean, you know, everything he does is, you know, he's, he's tracks, you know, and, you know, musicians all live at the same time. It's really, really a great thing. Yeah, I know. That's one of the problems, I think, with the way we record today is the fact that you, you can do so much just piecemeal and everybody chooses to do it that way. And it really takes a lot of the fun out of engineering, that's for sure. It's a lot more fun when you have a lot of people in the room. Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any favorite microphones that you always use? I have a lot of favorites. You know, it depends on what I'm doing. I mean, you know, I love ribbons. You know, I love ribbons more now than I ever did. I love the Royer ribbons. I love the AT ribbons. Uh, I guess those are my two favorites. Um, I still, you know, when I can, you know, I'll, I'll use the old Neumanns uh, 49s. I actually like the, the, the Neumann 149s. I'm still fond of certain shore mics. You know, I, you can't. You can't just, you know, have one or two favorite mics. You've got to have a collection. 
you got to go in there, you know, thinking, you know, you can't use any one thing specifically. And even when you're, you're accustomed to using one thing in one, in one place, all of a sudden that mic is not working in that situation. And you have to be open-minded enough to go to something you might not normally go to. What's your approach to a surround mix? Do you approach it any different than stereo? Well, in stereo, you got to get everything onto two channels, you know, and, and surround, you got a lot of options. Usually, if I'm mixing something in surround, 90% of the time I've mixed it in stereo. And so it's easy for me to break it out. You know, I already know the music, I'm familiar with instrumentation. You know, if I'm not, you know, it's, it's an experiment. Um, I did Beyonce's album last year in surround, I didn't do any of the stereos. And it was, you know, that was an amazing challenge for me. You know, there were things in there that I never, never thought I'd ever see, you know. And so it was a lot of fun for me. I mean, it was a great project to work on. Well, like what? But, what you know, what, when, when you say there are things that you, you never thought you'd see, what? Like what? A couple of cuts with no bass. Oh, okay. Wow. You know, all of a sudden you're dealing with a mix that has no bass in it. And it's not just, you know like a piano and vocal, it's a band or there's instruments, but you know, they, what they did like in, in a couple of cases was, you know, an 808 style kick, you know, with some great length to it. And, you know, it, it substituted for the bass and it was awesome. It was, it was amazing. It opened up a lot of room, you know, so, you know, it taught me a lot that you don't have to have a bass on everything. And, you know, I thought the way they, recorded and produced that that those that record was just brilliant yeah i wasn't aware of that that's that's interesting yeah it was pretty cool so you've seen the music business at least the modern music business sort of from its infancy where do you think it's going i have no idea it's definitely in a place where uh, people don't make as much money and i think that anybody who's thinking about getting into the business has to be prepared to do things a lot differently than we did you know it's more you have to be an entrepreneur and figure out how you're going to make a living like for for me and my peers it was you know well i'll get a I'll get a job at a studio and i'll learn everything and eventually i'll become an engineer maybe a producer now you i mean number one there's these studios that do that you know i've seen more studios like in new york for example a lot of studios in brooklyn have sprung up and they're really good studios but the the process of you know like when i started with phil i got paid a weekly salary to learn that was the way it worked um that doesn't work anymore you know they don't they don't hire uh people and pay them so they can learn how to do this stuff you know it's just it's so completely different you know a kid may have to you know break out on his own and maybe you know manage a band or book a band or you know i tell kids you know like engineering students you know like at berkeley or or any other place that you know you might want to grab two or three guys four guys and try and open up your own room somewhere you know put all your resources together and and do it that way and share time you know i know my son does that He's got a studio in Brooklyn with three other guys and they sort of worked it out. So they each have X amount of hours per month and they can bring in their projects and get paid for it. And they don't have to pay the rest of the guys. What's it like 
to work with Steely Dan? Um, well, you know, it was, it was always fun. I always had a good time. I'd known these guys forever and, uh, it was fun going to work every day when, when you're working at, and it applies to anybody, you know, when you're working on a project that, that you really enjoy, it's fun going to work. You look forward to it. You know, it's not like, ah, shit, I got to go to work again today. It's, I can't wait to get to work today. You know, even when, you know, little was accomplished, you look forward to the next day that, you know, maybe you would accomplish something. The music was great. Playing was always great. You know, songs were great. It was always a great experience, you know, and I worked with, you know, I mean, there's always more than me. Usually, you know, it was, you know, Roger Nichols and me usually, and it was Roger before me. And we had a great time, you know, working together. Um, I, you know, it was a great experience. Was it different working with them than many of your other clients in any way? Well, uh, yeah, you know, because there was so much attention paid to, to detail. I mean, I remember times when recording tracks with a, a band of maybe four to six. And if one guy made a mistake, you know, we, we'd start all over it, rather than, you know, maybe we can edit that piece from another take. It was there in their minds. I think, you know, they wanted everything perfect and they, I, they wanted a band to play a song top to bottom perfectly, you know, which was, you know, which eventually would happen. You know, it was just a question of how much time and money you were willing to devote to it. And, and, and it became fun. You know, you, you know, everybody was like, can we do this? Can we play this perfectly? And then, and a lot of the band, the guys in the band knew shit, if we don't get this, we're going to be fired tonight, which was, you know, the case in, in a lot of, a lot of situations where they would, you know, fire the whole band and bring in a new band for the next day. But, you know, that didn't stop them from bringing the same band back later. You know, it would be like, well, this, this, this particular band can't play this song, you know, and it was hard to figure out what was going through their heads. So you just went with it and, uh, it was different than anything I'd ever worked on. I mean, the Eagles were pretty, pretty much in the perfection as well, but it was a different thing stylistically, you know, and they could edit and they, you know, they could punch and, and do stuff. Whereas, you know, Steely would want things perfect at the bottom. Wow. That's amazing. I had no idea it was like that. Yeah, it was fun though. I mean, I enjoyed it. You know, I, everybody enjoyed it. You feel a little beat up by the end of the day and it wasn't anything personal. It was just, you know, the events of the day, but you got to hang with, with those guys and you got to hang with, you know, musicians that you'd seen on a daily basis for years, you know, so it was always, it was always a lot of fun. Nice when there's no limitations to the budget, I guess, too. But that, you know, that was, that was the old days, you know? <laughs> Not how much of that exists anymore, except for really, really big artists. You know, I remember working on albums with people who never made it, who weren't anybody, but spending a half a million dollars making a, an album that never did anything. And, you know, that was that. But, you know, there were other things that made up for it on, you know, on the label's roster. So they were always making money, you know. Last question. What's the best piece of music business advice that you've, you've either learned through your time in the business or someone imparted to you? As an engineer, I learned fairly early on, you know, like most engineers take things personal. And, 
you know, you, you get hired to do a project, maybe with somebody you don't know, they're hiring you because they like another record you did. Right. And they might even tell you, Hey, I really love this record that you did, you know, really want to work with you. And, uh, you go in there and you think, well, okay, you know, they like that record. I'm going to do this thing. And, uh, you know, so you spend a few hours working on drum sounds and then the rest of the band comes in and they listen to the drum sounds and the artist says, well, no, I don't like this. This kind of sucks. And you take it personally. This guy doesn't like what I do. You know, what kind of bullshit is this? And what I learned is that it's got nothing to do with that. You know, it's an engineer has to remember that he's a hired gun and he's there to solve a problem, not to create one. So when somebody comes in and doesn't like what you do, they say, well, okay, you know, how do you want me to change this? You know, what, what do you, what are you looking for? What kind of deal, what kind of thing is it, you know, and try and achieve that rather than taking it personally and saying, get the fuck out of here. You know, and, you know, just that was probably the biggest thing in my life, you know, cause it's not your record when it comes down to it. You know, it's not your name on it. It's the artist's name on it. And you've got to make him happy. It's, it's what they want. It's what they want to achieve or a producer wants to achieve and not what you think you bring to the table. You have to go in there. You're just a, a soldier. You're a hired gun and you have to try and achieve what they want to achieve, not what you want to achieve. How long did it take you to learn that? Um, it, it, it was really early on in my career. You know, it was just a couple of years in, you know, I had a bit, you know, it was band's record that it was moon dance. You know, I started getting a lot of work based on, on moon dance. You know, people wanted to work with me and I remember working with somebody and, and they hated the drum sound and I, I took it really personally, you know, and I don't even remember who put the thought in my head that it wasn't about me, but somebody did, or maybe it was the artist that did, you know, you know, I hired you for this reason not for that reason. So it was pretty early on in my career. And I tell that to people all the time, you know, you've got to be more open-minded as an engineer. You know, you're used to doing one thing, but that may not work for everything. Yeah. It might not even be your fault on a drum sound. It could be the, the tuning on the drums, the way a drummer's hitting it. It could be any number of reasons, you know, but it's not a personal thing. They hired you because they like what you do. You know, you just have to do what they need. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. You can also learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it in Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and this special replay. I will see you next time.